You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to Peninsula Bible Church. My name is Scott Grant, one of the pastors at the church. And I have to say uh, that given the fact that the last time I preached, I preached into my computer at home, I am so glad to see you. It's so much better to see not a computer out there, but real people who I know and love. It's great to have everyone here today. And also welcome to those of you who are joining us via live stream. Uh, So... um, In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy doesn't appreciate what she has on her beautiful Kansas farm. In fact, she runs away, or she tries to run away, and she runs into a tornado. And then she goes back home, and the tornado knocks her out, and then she dreams of another less friendly world. Well, then, of course, eventually she wakes up, and when she wakes up, she wakes up to reality, and she wakes up to the reality that, hey, what she has on this farm is pretty cool. All her friends, all her family, this is really a great, this is really a great place. I have a great life. I didn't know that earlier, but I had this dream, and now I realize, hey, this is really great. And she wakes up, and she says, there's no place like home. So last week, we began our study in the book of Ephesians. We're calling it the mystery of Christ because we are probing the mystery of Christ in the book of Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. And we saw that we are blessed, those of us who believe in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we're blessed with all of these blessings. Question, do we appreciate what we have? Do we appreciate what we have, those of us who believe in Christ? Now, we're probably uh, not going to be struck by a tornado. We're probably not going to be knocked out. We're probably not going to dream of another less friendly world. Nevertheless, you never know. You never know what might happen. You never know what God might bring our way to get our attention. But we do know this. God has given us his Holy Spirit to help us appreciate what we have. How does he do that? Well, let's look at our text this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. We saw last week about all of these blessings. We learned about them. And now Paul is going to have a prayer for us, beginning at verse 15. And he says this to his Ephesian readers, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." All right, well, let's look at this prayer. This is actually a prayer report. Paul is telling his Ephesian readers how he is praying for them. And he prays that God would give them his Holy Spirit, which is a little bit curious if we read earlier in the book because we understood there that God has already given those who believe in Christ the Holy Spirit. 
We who believe in Jesus have already been sealed by the Spirit. So we have the Spirit. What is Paul praying for here then? He prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The Holy Spirit reveals. The Holy Spirit gives us insight. The Holy Spirit gives gives us wisdom. That's what he's praying for. He's praying that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation would give us wisdom, would give us revelation. In what context? It says, in the knowledge of him. That is, in the knowledge of God. So Paul prays that God would give us the Spirit in this sense, that the Spirit would give us revelation, wisdom, insight concerning our relationship with God so that we can know God better. So that's the the beginning and the essence of the prayer here, to know God better, to grow in our relationship with God. So how is this going to happen? It's going to happen, it's, you know, you've got to read this really carefully because there are multiple clauses and commas and everything like this, but Paul is praying that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Now, um, our, our hearts, of course, don't have eyes, but Paul is using poetic language to stir our imaginations. Now, the heart, the human heart, biblically speaking, is not simply your emotions. It is your emotions, but it's your feelings, it's your thoughts, it's your will. It's the heart, biblically speaking, is the center of everything. So Paul is praying that we would become more aware, that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would be able to open the eyes of our hearts to see what we have, to see what we have in Christ, to see and appreciate and to grow in our appreciation of all that we have in Christ so that we can grow in our relationship with God. So is it possible then, given the fact that the Spirit has breathed out the Word of God and the Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts, is it possible that the Spirit could do this even now? As we look at the text which the Spirit has breathed out, as the Spirit is with us and among us, can the Spirit do this even now? Enlighten the eyes of our hearts as we look at this great text. Indeed, he can. So for me, um, a sermon is a work of the Holy Spirit from start to finish. Uh, For me, I I begin with the text and... uh, and, and in this case, uh, I've, I've translated the Greek text into the English, t- into in my understanding of how it should be translated in English. And so I, I do that, and then I, I, I'm studying it. I'm trying to understand what Paul originally meant to his original hearers. And then I'm, then I got to preach a sermon. I got to figure out how it's going to be helpful to the people I'm preaching it to. So for me, from start to finish, this is entirely a work of the Spirit. I am praying constantly for the work of the Spirit. I'm praying that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of my heart as I am looking into whatever text I'm going to be preaching. And I have to tell you, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful process. It's sometimes a torturous process. Uh, I come to dead ends. I think, oh, this is never going to work. I'm not seeing it. How is this all going to come together? I don't know. And then usually the Spirit gives me something. Oh, this is going to fit. This fits here. This works there. And then usually I have to tell you, by the time Sunday morning comes around, I feel pretty good about what I have to say. But I have a confession. I feel a lot less confident in my ability to say it. And I think that's probably a good thing. It keeps me dependent on the Spirit from beginning to end. And so I come on Sunday mornings, as I came this Sunday morning, to the Lord, 
And I'm praying for the ministry of the Spirit. I'm praying that the Spirit would make all of this come alive for you. Unless the Spirit works, my words are just words. Even the words of the Scriptures, which the Spirit has breathed out, they are just words unless the Spirit does something with them in our hearts. Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts even now. Now, Paul prays that we would understand by the Spirit three central blessings. But it's not as if we could ever understand the extent of these blessings. One of the blessings is power, which is the power of God, which is immeasurable. How could we ever understand the extent of that which is immeasurable? We cannot, but we can grow in our understanding and we can grow in our appreciation of what God has given. Alistair McGrath is a theologian and he's done some wonderful work in theology and in the biblical text, but at a certain point in his life, he felt stuck. He was putting all this stuff together, but it really wasn't making sense to him in terms of his relationship with the Lord. And here's what he said. Yet at times, this, all this work he was doing in theology seemed to be little more than just kicking ideas around. It was as if there were one part of my life that dealt with ideas, and this somehow never seemed to come into contact with anything else. It began to seem unreal and irrelevant. As I wrestled with this, I began to realize that my faith was actually quite superficial. I had understood things, but had failed to appreciate them. I had not made the connections that would have led to the enrichment of my faith and the deepening of my spiritual life. I had missed out on some of the great riches of the faith. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to miss out on some of the great riches of the faith. Paul lets us know in our text this morning about some of the great riches of the faith. But we need the Spirit to help us understand them and appreciate them. So what are they? What are some of the great riches of the faith that Paul outlines for us here in Ephesians chapter 1? The first one is hope, the hope of our calling. Paul prays that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know about the hope of our calling. Now, God calls us, if he calls you, through the gospel to believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be called. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians, that we are called through the gospel. So what God does is he arranges for the gospel to be shared with us. The gospel is shared with us. The spirit moves in our hearts so that we are convicted and we believe the gospel. So God calls us through the gospel, but he calls us to hope because the gospel gives us hope, hope that culminates in a new and an eternal creation. So we have this great hope. Do you believe in hope? So um, in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, there are these two friends who have contrasting views concerning hope. The first one is Red. And Red thinks that hope can get you in trouble. And you don't really want to hope because if you hope, you're going to be disappointed. And he says this to his friend Andy, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. You better get used to that idea. Hope is a dangerous thing. Andy, on the other hand, later in the movie, says to his friend, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Two contrasting ideas about hope. Who's right? 
Red or Andy? Maybe both are right. Because if, you, uh, if your hope is only in this world, only in what might happen here in this world, you're going to be disappointed because you're hoping for more than what this world can deliver. Your hope, the hope in your heart is bigger than this world. And this world is going to disappoint you. In that case, you might say, well, red is right. Hope can drive a man insane. You're going to be disappointed. Hope is a dangerous thing. You better get used to that idea. On the other hand, if our, if our hope culminates in a new and eternal creation that God is going to bring about, then we are going to be satisfied. Hope is not going to disappoint because God is able to do abundantly more than everything that we ask or think. We're going to see that later in the book of Ephesians. So, so Paul can say, on the one hand, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if we who believe in Christ are only hoping in this world, then we are most to be pitied, which is an amazing statement. If you believe in Jesus and your hopes, all your hopes culminate in this world, you are most to be pitied. On the other hand, he says in Romans chapter 5, 5, that if we embrace biblical hope, which culminates in the new creation, then we will not be disappointed. Hope does not disappoint. And the hope of the gospel, the hope in which we are called, we are called to does not disappoint. And this hope culminates in a new and eternal creation that will last forever where we will know God fully, we will know each other fully, we will be fully human, we will be fully alive, present to God, present to each other, to serve his glorious purposes in a great and grand eternal adventure forever. That is worth hoping for. And that's going to come about, my friends. There's no doubt about it. You believe in Jesus, that is your hope. It is a sure confidence. So what does that mean then for the present? It means this. Your story, no matter how difficult, if you believe the gospel, has a good ending. Your story, no matter how hard the chapters, has a good ending. Think about a good story. Doesn't a good story have hard chapters? And don't those hard chapters actually set up and contribute to the good ending? So it is with your story. You might be in the middle of a hard chapter right now. Your story has a good ending. Not only that, according to the scriptures, the story of the world has a good ending. Have hope. Have confidence. Believe in God. Believe in hope. So first of all, hope. Second of all, Paul prays that the Spirit would enlighten our hearts so that we can understand and appreciate this inheritance that we have been given. So this word inheritance is a key theological word. You go back to the Hebrew scriptures and the inheritance was the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God promised to his people. That's the inheritance. Then you get to the New Testament, however, and you realize that this whole promise of the land 
expands to be the whole earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for what? They shall inherit the earth. Not this little strip of land in Palestine. They shall inherit the earth. You go to Romans chapter 4, and Paul says that the promise to Abraham, the original promise to Abraham about the land was actually a promise for the whole world. So our inheritance is the world. That is the new world, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new earth, the new universe, which is going to be absolutely purified of everything that is evil. Now, we saw earlier last week that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance, as a guarantee or as a down payment. Now, Paul Taylor last week did a very good job of explaining this whole concept of a guarantee or down payment. A down payment is part of the whole. It is not the whole, but it guarantees that the whole is coming. So what we have in the present, if we believe in Jesus, we have the Spirit who is a down payment of our future inheritance of the new creation. So part of what's going to be, you know, what you get part of the whole thing in the present with the Spirit who gives us a taste of the new creation. The Spirit gives us a taste of what it will be like to know God and to know each other forever. In the present, we get glimpses of this glory. So that's what the Spirit does. Brent Curtis puts it this way. This side of the fall, true goodness comes by surprise, the old writings uh, tell us, enthralling us for a moment in heaven's time. They warn us it cannot be held. Something inside knows they are right. We understand that we must allow our desire to haunt us like Indian summer, where the last lavish banquet of golds and yellows and reds stirs our deepest joy and sadness, even as they promise us they will return in the fragrance of spring. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit gives us moments. The Spirit gives us glimpses. The Spirit gives us a taste. But those moments pass, don't they? You can't hold on to them. I'm sure you've had moments in your life or chapters in your life you wish this would never end, but it, it ended. And maybe you didn't appreciate it so much at the time, but now looking back, you go, man, that was a good season. Why can't I have that season again? Well, it doesn't work that way because the Spirit is giving us tastes and glimpses of the coming glory. So th- this comes in all sorts of ways. Uh, sometimes they're, they're dramatic. Sometimes it's subtle. Uh, Sometimes you really have to pay attention, but the Spirit moves in your heart to recognize something, to appreciate something, to to, to revel in glory, to revel in beauty. Many of you know that I go on at least one personal retreat a year, and several years ago, I was uh, on the first day of the retreat, I was pacing back and forth in my room, and I was groaning audibly. And I was groaning because God seemed strangely absent. I was longing for him. I was longing for his presence, for an intimacy with him. That's why I go on these retreats. I go on these retreats to meet with him, and he seemed absent. I don't know why. The next day, I was pacing back and forth in my room again, in the afternoon again, and once again, I was groaning audibly. But I was groaning because I sensed the nearness of God. He was so close that I could touch him. I was, I was groaning because his, his presence was palpable. So um, same sort of experience, same room, same motions, pacing back and forth, same sounds even. 
but really a different experience. God absent one day, God present the next. Why? I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that God gives us glimpses of his glory, tastes of his glory in the present, foretaste of what it's all going to be like to be with him and with each other forever. C.S. Lewis calls such moments patches of Godlight in the woods of our experience. It's a nice expression, isn't it? It's hard. Life is hard. But we have patches of Godlight in the woods of our experience. He also calls these glimpses of the coming glory given to us who now live in the valley of tears. Glimpses of glory in the valley of tears. And you never know when this is going to come. So you've got to be ready for it. And if you're holding on to the season saying this can't pass, you're going to miss the next glimpse of glory. The Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. So we have hope. We have an inheritance. Third and finally, we have power. So Paul prays that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the greatness of God's power God's power toward us who believe. Now, this power was exemplified in Christ in two ways. First of all, God raised Christ from the dead. That means that God defeated death. Jesus was resurrected. He wasn't simply resuscitated. He received a new eternal body that lasts forever. So first of all, God raised Jesus from the dead, triumphing over death. And then second of all, he seated Christ at his right hand, that is, sharing his throne with Christ, sharing his throne with the Son of God. And that means, as Paul says here, that Christ, seated on his throne, is superior to every other earthly or angelic or demonic power. Christ is superior to all the powers. He reigns supreme over all the powers, even now. You don't believe it? It takes faith, and the Spirit can give us faith to believe it, that Christ is reigning over everything, even now. And this will continue through the ages. He he reigns, he's superior, he's powerful, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Um, Biblically, there are two ages, this age and the age to come. But the age to come, we've already seen, has kind of broken into this age with the Holy Spirit. In any event, Christ is going to reign throughout the ages for all eternity. God has put everything under Christ's feet, which means that everything has been subdued. And so so the dominion that God intended for humanity way back in Genesis chapter 1 has been restored for one human. That is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, Jesus the King. At least at first, for one particular human, God's dominion for human, God's expression and desire for humanity is going to be fulfilled for all of us who believe in Christ one day. Dominion is going to be completely restored. Now, this power is toward, the power of God is toward or available, available to us who believe. So how does this work out? So Christ is the head. God gives Christ, who is head over everything, to the church. Now, this word head means authority. Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. So Christ as head over all rule and authority has been given to the church. 
Now, the church is further defined as the body of Christ. That is, we, the spirit of Christ inhabits us as the church so that we carry out the will of Christ on earth. Christ is not here with his body. We are his body. We carry out his will on earth. So we are the body. And, and this is further defined as the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is the fullness of Christ. The body is, this is confusing. Stay with me. The, 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 the body, the church is the body. The body is the fullness of Christ in us, among us. And in Christ, there is the fullness of deity dwells. So we have the fullness of God. We have the fullness of Christ. And then Christ fills all in all, meaning that he rules the universe. One of the ways he rules the universe right now is through the church. We're going to see that later in Ephesians 4. In the church, he gifts in order to serve his purposes. So, a lot of words. What does it mean concerning power? God has triumphed over the powers in Christ Jesus. God's power is available to us. What power do we have? We we have the power to believe that God has triumphed over the powers. We have the power to believe that God has triumphed over the powers. And if you believe that, you are free. If you believe that God has triumphed over the powers and you are in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. It doesn't matter what the powers do. It doesn't matter what anyone says or anything says. It doesn't matter what anyone or anything does. God has triumphed over the powers. And if we believe that, we are free. The writer of of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can anyone do to me? What can Satan do to me? What can tragedy do to me? It is irrelevant. God has triumphed over the powers. Pontius Pilate was a powerful earthly ruler, and he had Jesus before him. And he said to, he said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus was unconcerned with earthly power. He trusted in a heavenly power. And what did Pilate do? He ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, and he was unconcerned. What happened? What did God do? God raised Jesus from the dead, triumphing over Pilate. In the most important sense imaginable, if God has triumphed over the powers in Christ, then you who are in Christ have nothing to worry about. What have we seen? God has blessed us. God has blessed us with hope. God has blessed us with an inheritance. God has blessed us with power. God has given us these great gifts. He is a giver who gives great gifts. He is a giver. He is a blesser who blesses us. 
Now, if someone gives you a thoughtful gift, and uh, maybe you got one of those at Christmas time, and you weren't expecting it, and then you open the package, and you saw the package, and you saw what was inside the package, and you go, wow. I said, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, I didn't know I, 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 I would want something like this, but boy, I really do. Someone thought of me. Now, you're going to appreciate the gift, right? But aren't you going to appreciate the giver? Isn't the gift, knowing the gift, isn't that going to enhance your relationship with the one who gave it? So it is with God. He gifts us. He blesses us. Yes, so that we can enjoy these great blessings, the great blessings of hope, the great blessings of an inheritance, the great blessings of power, so that we can enjoy them, so that we can enjoy him. So Paul prays that we might know about these blessings in the context of our knowledge of him, that is, knowledge of God. So here's your only takeaway from today. So many words in this great, great passage. You have to read them about 10 times to understand what Paul is saying. But here's your takeaway. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy all the blessings. Enjoy what he's given. Enjoy the glimpses of glory. Enjoy everything that God gives you so that finally you can enjoy the Lord. Moses prays this in Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, your chesed, your loyal love. It's a prayer I pray pretty much every morning. Satisfy me in the morning, Lord, with your chesed. Satisfy me with you. Help me to enjoy you. Remember Alistair McGrath? Uh, he got stuck. He was a theologian. He knew a lot, but he was having trouble knowing the Lord. He was having trouble understanding the riches of the faith. Eventually, he began to sort himself out, and he eventually began to appreciate the riches of the faith. And he says this, when he did, I found myself wishing that I, that I had encountered them, the riches of the faith, long before. Then I began to do some serious reading and reflection. It took me 10 years to sort myself out, but it was worth it. Friends, it's going to take us a lifetime to completely sort ourselves out. But we know, based on what Paul tells us, that we have the Holy Spirit, which makes for an exhilarating adventure. Who knows what God is going to do in our hearts next? Perhaps even in these next two songs, the Spirit will enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you can know God better. And let me pray for us. It is absolutely astounding, Father, when we even get a glimpse of it, how you have blessed us. You've blessed us with hope. You've blessed us with an inheritance. You've blessed us with your power so that we can know you. What an awesome privilege it is to know you. Help us by your spirit to enjoy you. Lord, you have loved us so much. You've given us so much. Make us appreciative servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we sing these final two songs?